0: (laughs) welcome to reimagining justice exploring texas innovations in mental health a podcast by the texas judicial commission on mental health join us as we sit down with mental health heroes from across the state and hear their personal stories experiences and insights into the intersection of mental health and justice From Amarillo to Austin, Midland to McAllen, and everywhere in between, we're highlighting innovative ideas happening throughout the state that you can bring back to your own community. You'll get to know the leaders driving change and creating a more equitable and compassionate system for all. to the podcast. We are on site for the first time live in Hidalgo County with Judge Renee Rodriguez-Bettencourt, the 449th District Judge. And yeah, I'm excited to have you in person. We're sitting here looking at each other rather than talking over Zoom. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. It is.
1: I'm excited. I'm excited that you got to make the trip over here to Hidalgo County and that we're going to be talking about not just the 449 district court but some of the things that we've been working on for the past 8 years that I've been in office.
0: Yeah. And we're here also for tomorrow we'll be doing a juvenile sequential intercept model mapping so I think it's going to go great, and we're happy to be back in Hidalgo County. We were here doing an adult mapping earlier this summer, but now we're focusing on juveniles.
1: Yes, I'm excited. I know it's one of the first in not only, I think, the state of Texas, but also United States. It's neat to know that Hidalgo County is one of those counties that is kind of breaking through and making that breakthrough and and being able to be part of that. So I'm excited about it. We have about 150 people RSVPing. So I'm hoping that we got a little more than the adult
0: mapping event. So we'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. Being a leader for juvenile sim mappings across the state and like you said, the country. So we're definitely happy to put that on and I think it'll be great. We'll start off by getting to know you a little bit. So how did you kind of end up in the work that you're in?
1: So prior to becoming a judge, I was a legal counsel for a lot of different school boards uh, here in Hidalgo County, some of the largest school boards hired us at the firm that I work for to represent them in so many different issues. And so during that time, I got to see a little more insight into not only the educational world, but also in regards to children, seeing the different obstacles, challenges that they face, because predominantly, they were in school half the time. So mm-hmm. that kind of raised my interest as to working closer with children. And so the 449th District Court, the judge was up for reelection, he announced he wasn't going to be running. So I just thought it would be a perfect opportunity because it's the 449th was created about, I want to say 20 years ago, specifically as a specialty court to preside over all juvenile matters. So I thought, wow, you know, this is probably a great opportunity for me to really work with children to try to see what issues are out there. I had already done a lot of research on so many different juvenile courts across the state of Texas from Bear County to Harris County to Travis County and seeing the work that they were doing with the juvenile system and seeing how the judges were involved in this work was really interesting to me and something that caught my attention and said hey I, if they can do that we can do it mm-hmm. here in Idalo County so that's kind of what sparked my interest and so I had to obviously run for office so I ran a campaign and then I ended up having to enter into a runoff so pretty much mm-hmm. 6 months I campaigned for this to get this position and so that was almost 8 years ago I'm looking forward to continuing the work but we've done so much in these past 8 years and I say we because I can't not take the credit alone. It's been the help of so many individuals, so many resources, so many organizations. Like people say, it takes a village, and it definitely Mm -hmm. has taken a village to build up what we've been doing these past months here
0: in Hidalgo County. And you've really built a great court and courtroom, which is what we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But you're on our commission, and we know that you really have a heart for this and really care about every child that comes through your courtroom.
1: I'm raising teenagers and uh-huh. they have a, a term that they use. They call me a fan. They're like, mom, you're such a fan. <laughs> and I remember the first time that I got my invite to join the commission. And I walked in and saw like judges like Judge Wheelis and so many judges that I know had made their impression on the juvenile system. Not only that, but the mental judge like car with the mental uh-huh. health, I already had researched them kind of seen what they've done. And so I was I was a huge fan when I walked in, I was kind of like fan struck. But to get that opportunity to not only represent Hidalgo County, the South Texas Rio Grand Valley, but to interact with these individuals and for them to, to show their passion and show why they do what they do was really impactful. So many people say, well, you're helping us. And I'm like, No, I think I'm on the commission. But I think I'm the one that's winning because I get the resources. I get the information and I bring it back and kind of apply it. I don't believe in reinventing the wheel. I believe like we can tweak it, but we don't have to reinvent it. So what's working for somebody else can work for us. So being part of the commission has really given me so much insight has gotten me so excited. So like my kids say, I'm such a fan. I'm a big fan.
0: (laughs) Well, we're a fan of you. We're so happy that you're on the commission and we have commissioners from all over the state and you really advocate for the Rio Grande Valley. And this is our second mapping that we're going to be having tomorrow. And tell me about your connection to Hidalgo County and why it's so important to you.
1: So I mean, I was born and raised here. My Mm -hmm. parents were migrant workers. They married at a very young age, 15 and 16 years old. They raised my brothers and I here. The people, the culture were the majority. Hispanics are the majority here in the Rio Grande Valley. Mm -hmm. So we grew up kind of the best of both worlds, United States, and then also keeping our traditions of of Mexico and Mm -hmm. where our ancestors come from. So my father was a farm worker, he picked managed his own team out in the fields picking watermelons, and he moved on or got promoted Mm -hmm. to pretty much running his own crew and then ended up buying a packing shed where he would package watermelon, and the reason I'm talking about this is not only to show where I come from, but to show that he surrounded us with many different people. Mm-hmm. A lot of farm workers or those that work in the fields sometimes have some shady paths. They're not the first to be considered for office jobs. Uh, they may have some criminal re- you know, records. But what I came to learn from a lot of these individuals that my father surrounded us around was they didn't have that second chance. They were never asked what was wrong with them. They never asked what was going on with them in school. They were just kind of labeled and placed in a position where one of the options was to get into trouble or their parents didn't raise them, weren't part of their lives. Just different little things I noticed because I was always very Intrigued by people when I was growing up. So I asked a lot of questions. I spoke a lot. My dad would get very upset at me because I just <laughs> never kept my mouth shut. But so, you know, I, I came to learn from these individuals that surrounded us. They became friends of my father and they became his employees who he depended on so much to make sure that they did the job that was going to feed us and mm-hmm. feed our home. So again, that's where I learned about second chances from my father. My father gave these individuals second chances to come and work for him. And they some have worked with him for 20, 30 years. So I, I apply that to where I come from, because I wanted to do the same, I wanted to come back home, I left to go to Las at the University of Texas, I did have a lot of opportunities to stay there to go to other places across the state of Texas. But my family was here, my parents were here, I'm the only Hispanic daughter in, in the family. And I wanted to make a difference here. I wanted to show people like we could change. The University of Texas has a and I don't mean to do a little add out to them, but they have what starts here changes the world. And I knew coming back to my community, like not, maybe not change the world, but at least change my community and have other people see like, look, let's come back, let's make a difference. So that's why Hidalgo County is very dear to me. Growing up, we've also been involved politically, my siblings, myself, my other immediate family have worked as public servants to mm-hmm. come and change things never for our own benefit but for the benefit of others we're our biggest crit- critics if we don't think we're doing our job any well anymore then we step back and walk away without anybody doing that for us and then also we hear the people you know the people vote I didn't get into this position because of any but anything else other than people went out and voted mm-hmm. they supported a- they supported myself they supported my vision. So I owe it to the people of Hidalgo County to do what I've said I was going to do. And it's taken some time, but I think I've stuck to my word. And it's also an area that is getting bigger by the minute. We're at about Mm -hmm. 900,000 maybe census. I think we're more, but that's Mm -hmm. another topic. (laughs) But it's still small enough to get things done. Mm -hmm. We haven't outgrown that. That makes any sense. We're still... Able to pick up a phone and call somebody and say, hey, this is what's going on. How can you help us? We still have that tight knit community where it's not as difficult like in the bigger cities or the bigger counties to wait for a week or two for a phone call or wait for an email to be responded. I think we have that advantage and it's like, let's take advantage of it now before we do get too big. And we're working more as a actual urban county, which we are. Mm-hmm. But we do still have some things where we can still apply some of the rural county methods and still work, make it work for us. So that's what I do love about Adidalu County, and I think it's really neat. And I think we're innovative. I think we're getting a lot of new leaders, and even the leaders that are currently lead in our area have changed their mindset and are looking at things very differently because the world is just changing every single day, and our, our country and our area is as well.
0: Changing and growing and... Those innovative ideas are why we're, we're here to talk today about <laughs> one of them, and that is your new trauma-informed courtroom. Tell us a little bit about, one, what it looks like, and two, how you all started it. So being on the
1: commission, again, I saw so many innovative ideas, but not only that, but it gave me the confidence to think outside the box if if I wasn't already doing that, which I was, I was thinking outside the box in many ways, but I felt comfortable coming into a room with my colleagues that were supporting these ideas that were kind of talking about different things. So trauma informed courtroom, I came to uh, learn about it because we launched our first ever girls mental health lifelines called Mm -hmm. girls mental health specialty court. And Lifelines is for young ladies who have suffered some type of trauma in their life and have somehow ended up in the juvenile justice system. And so trauma-informed courtroom was something I had seen. My, my research, I kind of, I, I'm that mom that stays up till
0: one in the morning
1: <laughs> doing the things I want to do now because I'm, I'm done putting my kids right. to bed. And I came across a trauma-informed, not a, so much a courtroom, but a room or an environment And I had applied for a grant for both the Juvenile Girls Mental Health Court and the Juvenile Drug Court with the governor's office. I was very, very fortunate to have been approved for that grant. We kind of launched it a little late because of the funding, waiting for the funding to come through. And so during that time, there were some items that I had the funds for, but I wasn't able to utilize it for these certain things that we already had talked about in the grant. So when my assistant asked me, well, we have some money, how are we going to allocate this? I thought, why don't we transform the courtroom? And she goes, Well, we don't have that much money. I said, Well no, I know, but let's let's do baby steps and yeah. she goes, Well, what do you mean? And I said I want to make it more trauma-informed. I want to make it less of a courtroom and more of a area that the kids feel safe, that the kids feel they can come and just sit down and, and relax and open up. We have treatment providers who come in during the time that there's the specialty courts are going on, maybe before they can sit down, sit on the couch. And she goes, what, what do you mean a couch? And I said, yes, a couch, a coffee table. Let's add in some greenery if we can. Let's also try to showcase the kids, what they've done, like vision boards. She looked at me like, I. <laughs> she said, no, you you mean we are going get to get rid of a lot of things in the courtroom? I said, well, not get rid. We're just going to push them aside repurpose. and we're going to yeah. repurpose them. And not only that, but also they've already been traumatized. These children have already been traumatized. They already feel that there's no connection with them in a court. They think that we're part of the system, the system that has kept them in juvenile and detention, they don't have a lot of trust. Mm -hmm. So them seeing that I'm not traditional, that I'm, I'm doing things differently, hopefully gives them hope to say, okay, she does care, or she does want us to become better individuals, Mm -hmm. or whatever she is, or her team is teaching us, we should listen and, and kind of engage. Because she's going out there and, and doing this for us by getting a sofa or getting a coffee table, getting something that doesn't look like a regular courtroom. And then on top of that, I decided I'm going to kind of do away with the robe. One, it doesn't it's not very flattering <laughs> for a woman. And two, I need to connect to, to them as an individual, not yeah. as a judge, but still have them understand that I still have that power. I still have right. to hold them accountable but accountable in a very different way. And then also I have to ensure the safety of the public. I I do need to make sure that's one of the main goals as a juvenile judge, that we have to ensure the safety of the public. But I feel that if it's less traumatic, if they feel more comfortable, they'll open up, they'll feel that they can trust us once they kind of establish that trust and they see that we stick to our word. And it's not just about true, not true, offense, detention, kind of using the words that restraints, Mm -hmm. we try to just kind of not use a lot of those negative connotations about the system. They've already been been there, done that. So let's move on and grow from that.
0: There's kind of two aspects of this, one, the actual physical space, and then two, like you were saying, how you speak about things and the words you use and how they perceive being in a room with a judge. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the physical space. How did you, uh, we were just in there and I'm going to have some pictures attached to this podcast, but because it is an audio medium, can you describe just what you did with the space?
1: So I brought in a, a decorator who I have personally used. She's known to have decorated the the grieving center, Children's Grieving Center here in Nidalu County. She She's done that. She actually has undergone some trauma herself with the loss of a child. So she's done a lot of research about like colors and Mm -hmm. furniture that feels more at ease, different kind of decorating aspects that work with helping those that have dealt with trauma. So we're very limited, as you know, we're a county and we can't just go on Amazon and (laughs) buy what we want, which I wish we could. There's a lot of red tape uh, to get to what right. we need. So we started small, little by little. And I hope that one day you come back and maybe see once time passes, that the full transformation, because we can't get it there that quick as much as I want to. And I'm, I have to learn to have patience. <laughs> but we started with browns, greens, very light colors, beige, something that would drown out the walls that are in there. And and I kind of already had started that before we even brought in the furniture if you can see like their white walls, I feel white is a bright color. Let's recolor the walls so they, they can look new. They can look refreshing. I had started putting quotes on the walls, quotes that were inspiring quotes that not so much. It was even from a movie. We have a Rocky quote that talks about when you get hit and you're, you're down. It's not, It's not about what puts you down. It's how fast you can get up. And we have the whole Rocky quote, which I think Mm -hmm. is extremely inspiring. We have them look and read it so they can feel inspired. We have a Dr. Seuss quote. And so we started with that. And then as we evolved, we started including the furniture, which again, your coffee table, your sofas, your chair. And we incorporated those tones of calmness, the green, the browns, Mm -hmm. not bright colors, not super loud colors just things that kind of are soft and
0: calming and you also have a circle we saw in there for some group activities we have
1: a circ so we have a circle where there's group activities so i don't have benches in a traditional courtroom there's a lot of wood a lot of wood and a lot of wood benches i was lucky enough not to ever have wood benches and i say lucky because some judges may say, well, where are my wood benches? I'm attached to the detention center. So they built this facility about 15, 20 years ago. So it's a brand new facility compared to some of the other facilities Mm -hmm. in Hidalgo County. So I'm able to lift chairs and move them. We can have them for a group activity. We also remove them because we actually have a wellness coach that comes in and does exercises with our lifeline girls every two weeks. They'll come in and do exercises with the girls, nothing hard, but there's room enough to actually conduct those classes where they're teaching the girls to stretch, you know, coping methods also, as far as working out what type of exercises they can do when they feel anxious or they feel frustrated or they feel like they're going to be triggered. So we have enough space to actually incorporate those, those types of exercises and it's every other week. We also have the ability to bring in activity tables where they're not facing me, but they're facing each other and they're working on activities. Mm-hmm. We have different presenters that come in that talk about empowerment. We're actually starting our next section of career readiness where they talk about resumes. They, they're giving the girls a lot of different resources to look look forward to. But we're able to utilize that space with removing the chairs, putting them back, and then on top of that, having the other the other sections, like the sofas around that middle part. So if the girls want to take a time out, if the girls feel, hey, there's a lot today or I had a really bad day at school, they can take a timeout, sit in the in the sofa, maybe with a treatment provider. And there is a separate room that we have where we have another set of sofas, another set of, set of area where they can go in there privately and, and kind of have a, a session if, they need, if it's needed.
0: So the space itself is more calming and trauma-informed, but also we realize words have a lot of power and even just little things can make a child feel like they're in trouble or bring up trauma that they've had in their past. How do you talk to the kids differently? What are those things you say that are more trauma-informed? So when we started to implement our lifelines
1: and even the drug court, we created a handbook. And in the handbook, I told the team, I said, I don't want rules. I don't want to talk about conditions. I don't want to give rules. I want them to maybe be given information in a question type of format, like what is the lifelines court? What is a lifeline program? What is the drug court program? What is it going to be expected of me? What are things I'm going to learn? What are things that are going to impact me positive way? If I, fail to do something uh, or fail like a drug test or fail to follow curfew? What am I gonna be held accountable for? How am I gonna be held accountable? So just changing the vocabulary, even in printed materials was something we started with. And then when the children come in, it's just more, let's focus on the good, let's focus on the positive. And once we focus on the positive, then we start talking about, okay, look, for example, when school started, there was a lot of girls that were missing class. Why are we missing class? What is the issue? What is the problem? I think in the past, it's always been, what have you done? Why are you missing class? Because it's your fault. Pretty much, there's no explanation for it. So we have opened it up to more like, you're missing class. Okay, what's going on? Is everything okay in class? Are you feeling frustrated? What is it that you're feeling as to why you're not going to class? And I've seen that they'll they'll open up it'll take some time. Or we say, Hey, have you gone to your counselor? Have you talked to your counselors, your counseling sessions, we make sure that they go because I feel like when they go with a counselor that they've established a relationship with, that's where they get a lot of information. So the counselor comes back and says, judge, this is what happened in school. Can we talk about it? Can they talk about it? Can we do an exercise that pertains to them? Understanding that because of this happened doesn't mean you have to just give up and and go back to your old ways so we talk more in a positive light even when they have to be held accountable right i also have them come in when it's come to a point where there's multiple violations we actually have them come before me in the courtroom then we kind of transform it back to our courtroom in the sense of they come before me but we we have the rest of the girls sitting out there in the jury chamber kind of listening as to what's going on. And not only that, but kind of ad- helping to advocate for their friends, for their peer. Mm-hmm. Judge, I don't think you should detain. I think give her another opportunity. They've been trying. So it's neat to hear their input. Of course, we get permission from the young lady that we're, do you mind if your peers from the from the specialty court sit in? No, go ahead. So they, it's neat because they also get to understand how It's not just a judge making the decision. The judge is listening to others, is listening to them because they know each other more than sometimes we do. So it's also bringing in that peer-to-peer support. And I think since we've done that, the girls have really done amazing and not violating their conditions of probation, actually going to class, they're not happy about it. They're not (laughs) making great grades, but they're going and they're behaving, they're staying clean. And they see judges holding accountable, but we're also holding her accountable to make sure that she's also positive with us. So That's also the other thing we've done differently. We're trying to follow, of course, a model of specialty courts, but we tweak it to these girls and what we see every day.
0: And how's the reception been when you transformed the courtroom Were the kids... Excited about it? Did they notice? At least from your perspective, has there been a change?
1: They're like, "Oh wow, we got sofas." Judge, what's going on, or why do we have this? And they do ask a lot of questions, or they'll ask, like, "When do we get to use them?" So we kind of go give them the ground rules, but we kind of didn't say much. They'll mm-hmm. make the comments. We wait till they make comments. We don't ask them much questions, and so yeah. them sitting there and talking to each other before our programming starts is when I'm like, "Hey, so y'all like the couches?" They're like, "Yeah, they're really comfortable. They're really pretty. They're really nice." Not only that, but we haven't had any any outbreaks, any triggers during our programming because we talk about a lot of deep stuff, but we haven't had anyone just know animosity amongst the girls when they're in detention. We've heard stories where they fight with each other or where they argue with each other. No, it's been healthy discussions. I mean, of course, there's days where they don't want to be involved they have right. their bad days, but it's also recognizing them that they're there. They're showing up and that's what they want, that- look, judge, I may not be interacting today, but I showed up. So we don't talk down to them. We say, hey, we're glad you showed up. Thank you for showing up. But next week, let's interact a little more because we're just trying to help you. And they understand. So it's kind of a give and take sometimes with them. But they were like, oh, this is neat. It's different. It's different than what they've normally been used to.
0: Tell me how you got the funding for it. You mentioned that you had a grant. If other counties are interested in starting something like this and revamping their courtroom, transforming it, how can they go about doing that?
1: There's so many funding available for creations of specialty courts. One is through the governor's office with the state of Texas. We have federal funds. There's so much funds coming down from the federal government for mental health, Mm -hmm. for trauma. So they can also go on to the the Office of Juvenile Justice with the federal government. I serve on the Coordinating Council there. So I just got back from Houston on a meeting where there's just going to be a lot of funding. So grant writing grants is a way to to obtain that funding, and it's just being innovative in articulating what you want and the purpose and, of course, attaching it to how that's going to assist a child's mental health, whether it's in court or out of court.
0: And whether or not they end up getting a grant or funding, you mentioned there's other ways to be trauma-informed, even just by the way that you're conducting your Court hearings for the specialty courts or just talking to the kids, is there a guide that you sort of follow to be more trauma-informed, or how can these other counties change maybe the way that proceedings are going so they can become more trauma-informed? So
1: I do want to give credit to the state of Texas. The Supreme Court recently brought down some guidelines for us to follow as far as restraints, not restraining a child, not bringing them into the courtroom with shackles, and handcuffs, I've started to implement that the detention center, the juvenile probation department has to give me reasons as to why they're restraining a child as to why they're placing handcuffs and shackles on them. If they have never been in trouble, there's no signs of any type of danger to myself or to others, and I bring them in without the shackles. So that's one way. Another way is whenever you think a child has been triggered, there's been times where I'll go get off the bench, get a chair and sit next to the child and kind of talk to them, calming mm-hmm. them down, utilizing words, calming words that I've I read about and gotten from my trauma-informed training. So tra- there's training. There's a lot of training. There's trauma-informed training. You can Google it. There's so many different universities here in the state of Texas that offer it. Some is free, some isn't, but there's always an opportunity to get trauma-informed And so through those trainings, I was able to understand how I needed to speak to a child, especially when they're having a moment. I'll get my chair, sit next to them and say, hey, like, let's calm down. I know this is a lot, but you need to trust me. You need to understand that if I do detain you, it's because I need to get questions answered. I need to understand why you're in detention and I need to make sure you're safe and that others are safe. And that can't be done at home, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So we need to find the tools and resources to give you and your parents guidance as to when I do release you for detention, that you're going to make sure that you're not going to come back. So I handle all magistrations, all juvenile magistrations here in Hidalgo County. Anyone that for the first time comes, their first initial hearing, they are before me. So that can be very impactful for a child when they've never been in trouble that they have to show up in handcuffs and restraints so i have to go down there and calm them down and say okay look trust me or you're going to go home but this is what i need you to do because if you don't do it then unfortunately i need to bring you back into detention so it's just kind of knowing as much information That you can about the child before you go and approach them and sit down with them and talk to them. So that's another aspect of the trauma informed that you just don't think, oh, because I'm the judge and I'm cool and I'm going to give you nice words that it's going to calm a child. It's trust. And so getting them to understand that, you know, about them on the onset, like I'll tell them, look, I know what you've been through. I've read it in your psychological. I understand. But we need to get you help. And this is what we're going to do. But I can't do that if you're in detention. I need to get you out, but I can't get you out if I can't trust you to do what you need to do on your end. And a lot of times it works and it helps. So that's kind of an idea of what I do.
0: And this is still a relatively new program. Y'all started this just this summer. Yes. Where do you hope to take it in the future? And what changes do you hope to see or continue to see now that you've got it up and running?
1: I hope to one-
0: make sure that first
1: of all, that we meet our quota, that we meet our success stories, that hopefully those girls or those young men come back and talk about how this was impactful for them. I hope that even the ones that maybe don't make it through the program, through our phases, I hope that they one day come back and say, look, I maybe didn't get it then, but I get it now. So that's what we hope for. We also hope that we continue to get funding. We hope that our county takes note of what we're doing. So if we do need some assistance and funding. They see that we're we're making a difference. Mm-hmm. We're reducing the number of juveniles that are in detention. We're reducing the number of juveniles that are going to placement. We're saving money on them not going to placement because going to a placement is at about $200 to $250 a day. Mm-hmm. So we're saving taxpayer money. We're hoping that all that data, because we need to gather a yeah, lot of data, right. that all that data is compiled and it's shown in favor of these specialty dockets, specialty courts, like we like to call them, and that we invest more time in these types of dockets that we also invest more money in our area to maybe build a mental health facility. I idolize Harris County, they're doing some very innovative things to incorporate those programs in a smaller scale, of course, because we're not as big as Harris County, but in a smaller scale where the money also taxpayer money also stays within Hidalgo County and is utilized to help our kids because they make up our county and they're going to continue to make right. up our county. They're going to grow into adults. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, we're either going to place them in prisons or we're going to place them in the community where they're going to do some great things. And when I say great things, Rose, I'm not talking about getting degrees on the walls. I'm not ta- I'm talking about staying out of trouble, right. following the law, establishing their own families, establishing their own jobs. To me, success isn't measured by how much money you have in a bank or how many degrees you have in a Watts. Can you get a job? Can you maintain it? And can you support your family? And maybe not give them everything that society says you have to, but just give them a roof, give them food, give them clothing, give them the necessities that so that they can aspire and do well, and want to do more, go get that education that mom and dad didn't get. There's nothing wrong with that. Or that they find out that they work so hard that they become successful business individuals. Or they work so hard they go get a degree and end up being a lawyer or a doctor. Mm-hmm. Those are things that we hope to to show our community that if you give a child a chance and you give them the resources, they can do it. Of course, on the part of the child, the accountability is huge. So... Yeah, those are some of the goals I hope we can accomplish one day. But our immediate goals is just that we continue to keep running the programs. We continue to get funding and that we incorporate whatever up and coming ideas there are that's going to help the system become better.
0: We're coming up on our final question, which is (laughs) (laughs) prepared Uh, you for this one. You had a billboard and you could put a message on it that millions of people could see. What, What do you want the world to know? Give a child
1: a chance. Give a child a chance. And they can interpret that however they want. Give them a chance. Give them a chance at life. Give them a chance to become who they can become. Give them a chance.
0: You're giving them that chance here, especially with this new type of courtroom and really allowing them to have that chance to.
1: Well, and I hope and thank you. And I appreciate that. And also, I guess the word maybe just chance is is a key word, because I hope that Adults also understand that there's a chance for them to change. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say, they're, they're dangerous, you're sending them back, but they don't understand that we're still holding ourselves accountable. Yes, I may send them back out to the community, but you can assure that I'm holding myself accountable for them to do what they need to do. And I'm hoping that everyone, my team, our team, is also understanding them that from the juvenile probation department to my specialty courts coordinator to my case manager to our community leaders, that they see that we're all working together.
0: Well, thank you so much, Judge Rodriguez Fentoncourt, for you. having us here and for being being our first in-person interview. <laughs> and hopefully a lot of people can can take something from this and use it in their own courtrooms
1: hopefully and if not also i hope anyone has any recommendations any constructive criticism of course those are very helpful i don't we don't know it all but that's how we grow by learning from others and hearing from other individuals who've maybe gone through something to to enlighten us about things
0: yeah we're always learning and always striving to exactly to get better. exactly thank you so much thank you Thanks for listening. If you have an innovation in mental health that you'd like to share, send us an email at jcmh at txcourts.gov with the subject line Reimagining Justice Podcast. Talk to you soon.